Welcome to Heart Matters, a show about all aspects of heart health, brought to you in partnership with the Providence Heart Institute and Boston Scientific. The Providence Heart Institute is a leading integrated network of cardiovascular care with a focus on putting our patients at the heart of everything we do. And we are committed to making a positive difference in every life we touch. As part of that commitment, we are bringing the doctors to you. Hi, I'm your host today, Judy Dusick. I am the executive director of the Providence Heart Institute. And joining me on the episode uh, is Dr. Lori Tam. She's a cardiologist who practices in Portland, Oregon, um, very close to home. Dr. Tam, it's amazing to have you here. I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. Awesome. Well, um, today uh, for our discussion, we are going to focus on heart disease and people assigned female at birth. Um, we're discussing what we need to know, um, make sure that uh, we're able to identify signs and symptoms, but also what are some of the important things we need to know, like our numbers, right? And how uh, disease might look different for you as a person assigned for a female at birth and um, the different types of conditions that that we may not be aware of. So we're really excited to kind of dive into that. Um, but before we get started, I would love for you to tell the audience a little bit about yourself and um, the work you do at Providence. So I've been at Providence for almost 10 years now. I am the uh, medical director for the Women's Heart Program here at Providence St. Vincent in Oregon. Um, I have a special interest in women's heart health, um, cardiac imaging, and coronary artery disease. And um, I've been grateful to be a part of an amazing group of colleagues that kind of push the envelope in research and clinical care and um, great to be in their presence. Awesome. Well, th thank you again for being here. And um, you know, um, sometimes going to the doctor can be a, a little nerve wrecking, right? We come into the office, we've got something going on and um, we have to recall a lot of stuff, right? We have to recall our history, not just for us and kind of why we're coming into the office to um, to see our, our doctor, whether it's primary care or specialist, a cardiologist, such as yourself. And, you know, what are some of the things that are really important um, for us to, for, for patients to recall um, and especially since we're, we're really kind of, you know, trying to get specific on um, people who, I, who are assigned female at birth. Um, and what are some things about in general family history, but, but specifically about uh, people assigned uh, female at birth that, that, that we need to consider when we're coming in to see the doctor? Well, sure. So, you know, we, we say that heart disease is 80 is preventable by 80% of the time, but there's certainly times when family history and genetics play a role. So if there's a family history of coronary artery disease, atherosclerosis, when there's been plaque buildup, vascular issues um, in patients, there are certain types of valve disorders like bicuspid aortic valve disease that can be genetic. We also know that certain types of heart failure and cardiomyopathy can be genetic. So there's certain things like that, that are important to know. I think also for women, and it's also important to think about kind of the other medical things that have gone on in your life. We know that women who experience pregnancy-related conditions such as preeclampsia, gestational diabetes, gestational hypertension, they're at much higher risk of developing heart disease um, and stroke later on in life. So those are things I think that are important for you to relay to your doctor when you see him or her because those things are all very relevant. Right. And, you know, um, and I'm really glad you, you said um, heart health. And that this is preventable because I think that's key here is that 
um, a lot of the the things that we do um, sometimes are self-inflicting if we're not eating right, sleeping right, um, and those things that we need to be aware of. So um, talk to us a little bit more about some of the um, the genetic components um, that are more sort of lifestyle based and uh, maybe even culturally based, right? So a lot of sometimes things are driven by, um, you know, the types of foods we eat, just depending on where we where we grew up and and kind of what like what our mom or grandmas like to cook, right? Yes, absolutely. You know, so we say that your heart health really has a lot to do with um, not just, um, you know, the things that you can't control, but there's so much you can control, you know, the, how what we eat, how active we are, what we do, how we live. And um, so some of those things I think that we can impact really are lifestyle and dietary things. We know that certain foods that are higher in saturated fat content, higher in simple carbohydrate content, those things drive risk factors that increase your risk for heart disease. You know, that increases your risk for high cholesterol, for diabetes, high blood pressure. We know that the vast majority of Americans eat um, way too much sodium, you know, and that causes mm -hmm. high blood pressure, which is a huge risk factor for stroke and heart failure in this country. So so um, yes, many of those things are um, uh, in our environment, and sometimes we have to retrain ourselves from the things that we grew up on because they're not always the healthiest, um, uh, you know, traditional things that we've eaten in the past. You know, I'm uh, I'm Chinese. I grew up eating a lot of white rice. We mm -hmm. there's a lot of sodium in the diet. There's soy sauce and oyster sauce and all those things that make food good, but not so great. And you know, at the same vein. Right. East Asians get a lot of diabetes. You know, um, yeah. um, I had gestational diabetes when I had my last child. I was an older mom, and that was kind of a reality check for me too, because it's like, mm -hmm. well, you know, I'm a good weight. I try to do the right thing, and I try to eat right, but that wasn't something I could really control. That was in my genetics, and and you know, my father had had diabetes, so of course I was going to be at higher risk for gestational diabetes. But now that I know I've had gestational diabetes, even though it wasn't very serious, um, and it resolved after I delivered my baby. Um, who's now six? It's been years, but um, you know. But at, at uh, because of that, I know that I have a higher risk of heart disease going forward, and that I think is actually empowering knowledge because I know mm -hmm. that if my risk for heart disease is two times higher because of that, then I'm going to be even more proactive about doing the lifestyle things that I think are important to making sure that my blood sugar is checked now when I do my right. annual visit with my physician and making sure that I cut back on simple carbohydrates and things, um, the noodles, the rice, things like that, that mm -hmm. I grew up on, because I know that those are the things that can drive my risk going forward. Right. And I, I'm with you on, on, on that and sort of what we grew up eating, um, you know, uh, as, as, as kids and, um, yeah, high, had also high diabetes, uh, diabetes in my family. Um, I think uh, definitely genetically predisposed to high cholesterol. Um, my mom has high cholesterol and and she eats well and she takes care of herself. But there's just some of those things that you just kind of have to have knowledge of. And and I would have never known because I, you know, I was kind of at a decent weight. I would exercise all those things, but I would have never known if I hadn't gone for an employee physical and they said, hey, do you want to get your your numbers, your your um, glucose, and all these things? And it turned out that in fact, I actually was borderline high cholesterol, and that, to your point, this really sort of triggered the behavior. And just I started looking up everything you know that would help raise like the good and the bad cholesterol, um, and and just you know to help that. And I saw actually over three years the numbers drop. So, Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It's, diet is just, and that is is actually a pretty significant lifestyle modification. 
For sure. You know, and I think, as I said, you know, knowledge is power, right? Because mm -hmm. if you don't know, you don't know. Because I've seen women that come in with heart attacks or in their 40s and they're like, well, how did I get a heart attack? I, you know, you, I had a, you know, it's like you had a 90% blockage in this artery that we opened, you know, and mm -hmm. they're like, well, I've never had any of these, you know, things. So it was like, and then you check their numbers and then you're like, well, actually, your cholesterol's high, you're diabetic. And they're like, well, yeah, it's because I haven't had it. I haven't had seen a doctor in a number of years, haven't had those things checked. So I think that once you're empowered with that knowledge, you can actually make so many things that can really change the trajectory of how you'll do. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, when I talk about these younger women that get gestational hypertension or preeclampsia, and they have the baby, and they kind of forget about it. But right. in reality, 20 years from now, these are the women that end up coming in with the heart attacks and the strokes and the heart failure. So if you can get to them early, if you can educate them early, they institute these lifestyle changes early, they'll never come in in 20 years of this mm -hmm. kind of with the actual problem, right? Because we've now kind of changed the trajectory of how they'll do. So I think that that's really uh, empowering. Right. So we talked about something that really we can kind of see on the surface, right? Numbers, we can get our cholesterol, our blood pressure, our glucose. Um, but what about those things that are sort of, you know, that, that are genetic, that probably are a little bit more complicated to diagnose? What are some of the advances and kind of how do we test for that? Um, to, to determine those, those, those just as serious diseases, but that maybe aren't as common. Mm -hmm. Well, it depends what you're looking for, right? Because with the heart, there's a lot of different things that can go wrong. There can be atherosclerosis, which is a plaque issue. There can be valve issues. There can be a pump issue with heart failure. And there can be electrical issues with heart rhythm. But um, I think, you know, because far and away, atherosclerosis, coronary artery disease is the cause of the majority of the heart issues in this country related to plaque buildup and blockage of arteries that can drive heart failure and other things and rhythm issues. Um, you know, a lot of times I'm recommending a coronary calcium scan for a lot of my patients, especially ones that have risk factors for heart disease, either kind of high cholesterol that's borderline, we can't decide whether we treat them with a statin aggressively early yet, um, or um, if they need a little convincing before they're willing to consider a statin medicine, or if they've had a strong family history of someone who's had a heart attack. You know, they might say, well, my mother had a heart attack at 45, I'm 42, what should I do? You know, so yeah. sometimes you can start screening for these things. And a coronary calcium score I have found to be quite helpful because it essentially looks for evidence of calcified plaque or coronary calcium. And often it's silent plaque that we're looking for before you actually have symptoms, before you know you actually have your heart attack. We're actually looking for silent calcified plaque and, and coronary calcium buildup. We know that if your score is really high, your risk of, of having a blockage issue um, is going to be pretty significant. And those are the patients we target early um, with early intervention with medical management, uh, with statins, also dietary and lifestyle changes. So if we can identify those at risk early, then we can institute the things in your life that can decrease your risk. So I think those are, it's an important tool that I'm using quite a bit now. In certain patients, we'll take a really good history. And if yeah. it looks like there's heart failure history or other certain things, we may do an echocardiogram, which is an ultrasound of the heart to look at heart function and structural problems. Um, so there are things that we can look for early. We do an EKG sometimes to look for electrical things. If there's been members of the family who've had electrical problems or heart arrhythmias or sudden mm -hmm. death that are unexplained at a young age, there may be a genetic uh, composition to that in terms of electrical disorders that we'll look for. Um, so there's a lot that we can do. Um, once we um, kind of have an idea of what to look for, you know, aortic yeah. aneurysms is another thing that if there's been a family history of multi of people who've had aortic aneurysm rupture, especially early, um, then we can start looking for connective tissue issues that might put you at higher risk. 
Right, right. So, so just so the takeaway from that is that you know not not all heart disease we, we like to associate with all uh, with it leading to a heart attack, but not all heart disease leads to to you know what, what sometimes I've I've heard sort of the, the Hollywood heart attack, right? It's not as like as as um, prominent that way, and and it can actually just happen over time. Yes. And so really paying attention and knowing knowing your baseline is is important. So, uh, so we talked about, um, you know, physical activity and sort of eating, uh, you know, playing a role. Um, but when we look at risk factors, you know, kind of across, uh, you know, whether it's gender, race, ethnicity, we talked a little bit about sort of environmental factors, um, which are, you know, uh, all play a significant role. Talk to me a little bit about, you know, stress and, and things that we do day to day, right? And maybe some of the different things that play into whether, whether it's gender or ethnicity, and how we respond, right? So, so we, as as women, sometimes I I hear we tend to internalize those things. We've got things to do. We got to do this, and we kind of ignore it. Um, but but talk to me a little bit about how stress plays a role in into this. Mm -hmm. So we know that higher levels of stress are directly correlated with higher risk of heart disease. You know, when we get more heart attacks, more strokes, higher blood pressure it drives our cardiac risk to a significant degree. You know, in fact, there's some types of heart attacks that are related to stress. You know, there's a condition called stress cardiomyopathy, also known as broken heart syndrome. Uh, and mm -hmm. it's actually, we see it time and time again. And 90% of these cases occur in women. Um, and so there's certainly a bit of a genetic predisposition that's a gender predisposition that makes women more susceptible, whether it's because we internalize it more because our um, kind of these um, uh, these catecholamine receptors in our heart are more sensitive. Um, women tend to get more stress cardiomyopathy and it's a type of heart attack, sometimes resulting in heart failure um, mm -hmm. that is often triggered by a very stressful event. It could be a bad stressor, like a traumatic event. I had a, a woman who um, found out that her college age son had just drowned in the school swimming pool. Oh my God. Very shortly thereafter, she started getting chest pain. It got worse and worse. She couldn't breathe. Came wow. into the emergency room, had, you know, elevated cardiac enzymes, was in the middle of a heart attack. We did her angiogram. She had normal coronary arteries, renal blockages in there. It was just a transient stress reaction that stunned her heart and gave her a small heart attack and heart failure. Wow. Um, she recovered over time. But, you know, it's very real, you know, so you stress can cause heart disease, it can increase your risk of atherosclerosis and plaque buildup and stroke, but it can also cause a stunning of the heart and result in a severe event like this. Right. We also know that there are certain types of heart attacks, like a spontaneous coronary artery dissection, where there's um, a tear in the arteries, we'll talk a little bit more about this mm -hmm. type of heart attack, but it occurs more in women, and stress can be a preceding trigger in a number of these cases. So, um, so stress is real and yeah. its impact on the heart is real. So I think it just kind of, kind of stresses the importance of, you know, being women, we take care of everyone around us. We have families, we have children, we have our work. So yes, we're busy, but we also need right. to take care of ourselves because if we don't, then who's going to be around to take care of them? Right? So, right. um, you know, that's important to make sure we're eating right, make sure we're sleeping adequately, uh, limiting alcohol intake, mm -hmm. trying not to smoke and managing our stress, you know, whether it's um, some time to meditate, whether it's just decompressing for a few minutes every day, but really being able to teach ourselves how to handle that stress so that we can't um, impact our health in a negative way. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, it's it, the big takeaway there is just that it, it's, we shouldn't profile, right. That, that certain diseases are only for 
only certain age groups or certain genders or um, certain ethnicities because all these things, they can just happen to any, to, to anyone. But to your point is if we maintain ourselves and we optimize our health and we listen to our bodies and we have sort of, you know, mindfulness if we if we are able to get that time to do that, which I, I agree. Um, I my husband and I both we we actually took in um, sort of meditating at least once a day for like like 20 minutes. And it actually had an impact on our weight loss, um, you know, on top of, you know, we would try to go to the gym and all the sort of the typical things, but um, didn't realize how important sleep which we tend to not get enough of, and um, and and just really sort of taking that pause um, to to bring everything down, right? Because what happens with stress, right? All, your your blood pressure goes up, your heart rate goes up, and it just drives all of that. So it's like revving. It's like imagine revving an engine on a car repeatedly, mm-hmm. and all just the wear and tear it does on on that. So Absolutely. I think that that's an important takeaway. Um, so you talked about something really interesting. Um, which we we're, we're calling it SCAD, S-C-A-D, right? So that's um, spontaneous coronary artery dissection. I I first heard about, well, not first heard about it. I've kind of known about it, but I, I really appreciate how much research has been done on this because um, it was probably about 15 years ago when I met a woman, um, she was telling her story. Um, she had just had a baby. Uh, she was walking the baby in the stroller and she got uh, short of breath and just felt really tired. And she just kind of thought, well, this is, you know, I just had a baby and I just got back from a walk. And about 24 hours later, she was in the ED and her her aorta had ripped right from her chest mm-hmm. down or was starting to. And she, they saved her, obviously. She was able to tell her story. Yeah. But the the amount of, I think, research has happened from like even, let's just say, 15 years ago to today is amazing. You presented that today. Mm-hmm. And um but there's a there's there's got to be awareness and there has to be sort of an investigation in how this affects like women in different ages and so now there's like this mm-hmm. registry talk to us a little bit about that and i know you're you're a critical um uh stakeholder in that cuz you are a, a, a researcher so talk to us a little bit about scad yeah so spontaneous coronary artery dissection is actually the most common cause of heart attacks in younger women so women under the age of 50 and many of these women don't have your typical atherosclerotic risk factors they don't usually have diabetes or high cholesterol they're usually you know very healthy and fit and young Mm -hmm. and it's a type of heart attack that's not due to a plaque issue it's not a plaque buildup it's a tear in the artery so there's essentially a weakening in the wall of the blood vessel there's a little tear in it and you end up getting Um, essentially kind of a giant collection of blood um, that's collected between the walls of the blood vessel of the heart. And that cuts off blood flow in the true lumen and you're not getting enough blood flow to the heart muscle. So it causes a heart attack, but it's not from a plaque issue. And it's usually in people that don't look like you would expect them to have a heart attack. They're often younger women. The average age is somewhere in their 40s for the most part. And um, it's the most common type of heart attack in women who've just delivered um, or are pregnant. I've seen at least two women this past year who are like at their last trimester of of, uh, pregnancy and come in with chest pain and are having acute heart attacks while they're like 39 weeks pregnant. We've had to deliver women very shortly thereafter because they went into labor, you know, and it's about protecting them and understanding the disease process well enough to know what we can do for them. But the majority of the time, these patients do well with medical management, with medications. You know, years ago, we didn't realize they were having a scat heart attack. We'd see a young woman, she'd obviously be having a heart attack. We do an angiogram, we're like, that looks kind of funny. 
but there's not really a great spot to stand, or maybe we would try to stand if we could, um, you know, and not all of them did well because we weren't treating them and we weren't diagnosing it properly right. because we didn't understand it. Right. But now right. our angiogram technology has gotten so good. We can actually see these little dissection tears on the angiograms and we now know the difference. And um, we know that certain medicines like beta blockers, which slow down the heart rate and decrease mm -hmm. the blood pressure, puts less stress against the walls can help uh, protect you, prevent another SCAD heart attack or treat your current one, prevent it from propagating. Um, so, you know, our understanding of it is so much better, but we think estrogen plays a role because 90% of these heart attacks occur in women. You know, men get them too, but not very frequently. And um, yeah, so the estrogen levels are certainly higher during pregnancy and in the postpartum period, just like our bodies kind of preparing ourselves for delivery, our hips widen a little bit, the joints right. get more relaxed, the tissues get more relaxed. It's a good thing when you're trying to carry a baby and deliver a baby, but that same sort of impact, those hormones on the level of the blood vessels make the blood vessels more fragile. You're more prone, prone to tears and dissections mm -hmm. and aneurysms. That woman that you talked to, her aorta ripped, she had an aortic dissection. Mm -hmm. Those are conditions we see more kind of in the peripartum, postpartum period. And yeah. a spontaneous coronary artery dissection is a dissection that happens in one of the smaller arteries that feeds the heart muscle, which is also very critical. So um, it is a condition that we are now diagnosing more because we know more about it, we understand it, and we can recognize it. But it's yeah. overall still a rare cause of heart attacks in the grand scheme of things. But when you're seeing a younger woman um, without obvious cardiovascular risk factors, this actually goes towards the top of the differential in terms of trying to figure out what the cause is. Right. But, um, you know, so as part of that, I'm one of the local principal investigators for the International SCAD Registry. So the SCAD Registry is a collaborative multi-center clinical registry that is um, across a number of countries now. But there, where Providence is one of 20 sites across the world that is entering patients into this registry. You know, we're in the company of some great uh, other institutions like MGH and Vanderbilt and Johns Hopkins and UCLA, but we are, um, uh, you know, an active enrolling site. Uh, we enroll patients who have had SCAD in, uh, and um, they complete questionnaires. We complete questionnaires in terms of their medical history, their hospital course. We submit their angiogram films to this registry. And the goal is to compile data on this condition that's pretty rare in the grand scheme of heart attacks. Um, but um, use that information to help facilitate the development of clinical guidelines to help mm -hmm. manage SCAD better, to create best practices to prevent SCAD or its reoccurrence in the future. Yeah. So I think this is really key because this is how we've identified, you know, certain things that will trigger um, an increased risk for SCAD and how we can better treat patients when they have had SCAD. Right, right. And I and I would I would also assume that just you know the awareness for the provider community to just kind of keep an eye out for this, right? And so who who would be some of the other, um, you know, uh, physicians that would sort of need to be aware of this? Because if, if somebody's having that urgent um, episode, then they would likely go to the ED, right? Or the ER. And so how, how are we sort of spreading the knowledge about this? Since it's, you know, somebody might say like, you can't be having a heart attack, but you know, they, they get their EKG and they're just like, what is going on? Mm -hmm. So who else um, in the provider community would, would need to know this? 
Yeah. Well, I mean, honestly, anyone who takes care of women should know yeah. that women can get heart attacks. Young women without risk factors can get heart attacks and to recognize that, you know, if they're having symptoms that sound like angina, it doesn't sound right. You know, at that point, you want to get an EKG and you may want to check troponins to look for evidence of heart muscle damage. Um, you know, I know that, you know, pa uh, the patients that are taken care of by um, uh, cardiologists are aware of this now. Primary care doctors are aware of this. Um, and a lot of our um, ob gynecologists to see a lot of women patients are very well aware of this. Mm -hmm. And as we kind of promote this knowledge that heart attacks don't have to look a certain way, it's not necessarily the, um, you know, middle-aged man with a beer belly mm -hmm. showing snow and popping nitro, right? It can be yeah. a young, healthy, fit woman that comes in with a spontaneous coronary artery yeah. dissection. You know, we know that intense exercise can trigger it. I've had women that are doing like really vigorous activity like kettlebells and CrossFit and, you know, they're pushing it because they think they're doing what's right for their heart. Um, but in fact, sometimes really strenuous exercise can trigger mm -hmm. SCAD too, especially in someone who's predisposed. And right. sometimes um, there's certain vascular conditions that, that can predispose you to SCAD. There's a condition called fibromuscular dysplasia that we're now finding a lot in women who actually get diagnosed with SCAD. You go looking, and you find that they have other vascular abnormalities, maybe aneurysm and dissections in other vascular beds that we wouldn't have known of, of otherwise. So right. I think that um, it's yeah, knowledge is power and we want to empower kind of all of our providers in our community to be yeah. aware that heart attacks can come in many shapes and ways and forms. Right. And that the patient is as much of a part of that care team as anybody. And so it's like, we've, we have to also speak up for ourselves, right? Cause you can't read our minds. We can, you know, and, and we tend to internalize that. I talked about that earlier and just we either deny it or, Oh, it's fine. And then we wait till the last minute. So it's really about just, you know, it doesn't feel right. Just get it addressed, you know, go and get yeah. it checked out. I mean, well, the worst it could be is a false alarm. Right. And that's okay. Yeah, yes. that's okay. Because when the real deal hits, then you're going to regret that you waited a day, you know, right. so because, you know, studies have shown long shown that women delay presentation at, at the onset of first heart attack symptoms. You know, we mm -hmm. present hours and hours later on average than a man would. If they get symptoms, they tend to present earlier um, for medical evaluation and women put it off. Yeah. Uh, sometimes because we don't believe we're having a heart attack or I can't be having a heart attack. But the reality is heart disease is very much a woman's disease. You know, in the last 30 plus years, for many of those years, where more women have died from heart disease than yeah. men each year. Yeah. And why is it a man's disease? It's not. It's a woman's disease. And yeah. I think that if we delay treatment, that's one of the reasons women die more when they're having an acute heart attack. Actually, more women die when they present with an ST elevation, which is the most severe type of heart attack when there's a complete blockage or near complete blockage in one of the arteries. But more women die in the first 30 days after an ST elevation heart attack. And it's many times it's driven by the fact that we present later. So there's more yeah. heart damage, it's more permanent. Sometimes at that point, it's irreversible damage. We end up with yeah. more heart failure because of it. So um, that's why it's important to realize that, yes, if things don't feel right, then just go get it checked out. Uh, right. I think the alternative is much more serious. I completely agree. So, um, so right, so we, we talked a lot. We talked about sort of the, um, you know, the, the anatomy of a heart attack. And, the, and we're talking a little bit about the physiology of heart attack and how est estrogen hormone levels can change that. What about the other extreme of sort of hormone levels, like when women are going through menopause, mm -hmm. um, since we're so like, you know, we're 
we're made up of all these hormones. So what happens when that starts to shift? Mm -hmm. That's actually really interesting because, so, you know, women get heart disease, atherosclerosis type heart disease, but we tend to get it about 10 years later than men. You know, so we'll get it often if we're predisposed and we've got the risk factors and, you know, maybe we haven't done the best lifestyle kind of management, but we tend to get it later than men because we actually have the protective effects of our estrogen when it comes to atherosclerosis prevention until we start to lose it. So kind of after a woman goes through menopause, we see that if nothing else changes, her cholesterol numbers tend to go up. You know, her LDL bad cholesterol goes up further. The HDL, which is the bad cholesterol, starts to grow down. And women will say, well, I eat the same. I exercise the same. Why is my cholesterol numbers going up? And it's because when you start losing the natural estrogen, your your atheros, you know, all those risk factors start to go up for atherosclerosis. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, some women do get heart disease, but we tend to get it a little bit later because we lose the natural protective effects of our estrogen. So too much estrogen isn't good for SCAD when you get coronary artery dissections and aortic right. dissections, but for atherosclerosis and plaque prevention, your natural estrogen is actually really good. It protects you. Yeah. you know? So, um, you know, one of the questions I always get asked is, well, does that mean that I should go on hormone replacement therapy? Um, you know, so when I go through menopause, do what would I protect my heart if I go on estrogen? You know, that's kind of a mixed bag in terms of what the studies have shown. You know, early in menopause or perimenopause, um, it's fine to be on a little bit of estrogen if you need it. So if you mm -hmm. need it because you're having horrible hot flashes and kind of get can't just need something to help get you through low doses of estrogen replacement early in menopause. And in a younger woman is probably okay. Once you start getting older, especially older than 65, or if you've been on estrogen replacement for more than five years, that risk probably starts to outweigh the benefit. Um, because we know that breast cancer risk starts to go up, especially when right. you've been on estrogen replacement for more than five years. Um, and then we start seeing the risk of heart attack and stroke actually go up with time. So wow. um, so it's not always, you know, a clear cut answer at different stages in our life. Different things are good and different things are right. Um, you know, we know that women, even women who go on birth control pills because of the estrogen content and birth control pills, they're at higher risk for blood clots. You know, you'll see yep. a young woman with a blood clot or pulmonary embolism sometimes or a stroke um, in estrogen can predispose you if you're more inclined um, you know so I think that and we see the same in older women on estrogen they get more strokes and, and blockages and heart attacks too yeah. so there's a time in your life when estrogen might be good and a time in your life when estrogen isn't so great so but I think if it's your natural estrogen if you're making it on your own um, it's good it's good until um, you start to lose it and then our risk goes up and we just need right. to be cognizant of things that we need to do maybe at that point you know, your numbers go up enough, we need to put you on a statin medicine. You right. know, it's just being proactive, making sure that your numbers are checked annually and mm -hmm. that you have these discussions with your healthcare provider. Right. Gosh, that's so important. I mean, it, and, it, and it is, I mean, it's, it should be simple enough, right? We should just be able to make that appointment and make time for it um, because it, the more prevention and proactiveness we have at the front end kind of helps with some of these things are just that are inevitable, right? I mean, we we go through life and we sort of we're, we're preparing for that. Um, these things that we just may have to battle, and and that that may just be what it is. So yeah, I I can appreciate that, and just those regular, um, you know, regular check ins and with your with your primary care doctor. But you you know, it's I think it's important, and this is something we probably struggle even just with like taking care of our own parents or our own family, right? Mm -hmm. Is just you know making sure that they take care of themselves get in there, see the doctor, follow the plan. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
yes. <laughs> you know, because they're part of the care team too. And I think that's just, um, you know, it isn't just the doctor sort of telling you that this is happening. You have to recognize it's happening, but also own that care plan just as much. Oh, you have to institute and carry it out. You know, it does. Yeah. It, you know, you have to take those pills. You have to make those lifestyle changes. The doctor can only prescribe them, right? So, right. but you carry it out. So, there, you're the most integral portion portion of that care team. Right, right. And then um, I would say the other piece too, right? So, I, I um, have had experience with. Um, I was I taught Zumba for a number of years. Um, it was sort of my my way of of uh, sort of community involvement. And um, I, I practiced at this facility that um, allowed families to work out when kids were as young as like six years old. Mm-hmm. Um, most gyms in most cities, uh, big cities, you you know, they could only be like 13, 14. Mm-hmm. Um, but here in, um, in the community I grew up was in South Texas, where it's a large Hispanic community. And um, this, this gym facility would cater to sort of those big families. Um, and kids as young as like six, eight years old were already hitting like, you know, you know, BMIs uh, that were really high and just overweight, you know, diabetes starts in, ch- in children. And so, you know, um, but what I loved about teaching is that, I, you know, one, it would be about a class of about 80 to 100 people. And it was just the whole family. And so you would have the moms, the dads, even the grandmas would come and the kids. And I just think, you know as uh, that it's something that, you know, that mothers or even fathers that we just really have to also encourage at a very young age, right? This is the lifestyle modification Mm -hmm. that must start early, Mm -hmm. right? So, so what are you, talk to me a little bit about, you know, um, what we can do sort of in, in that prevention space, even when it's, it's at at childhood um, for our kids. Yeah. So, you know, there's a saying, there's actually a discussion, uh, you know, question in public health and in cardiac public health, that actually your health status um, is actually more impacted by your area code than your genetic code. What does that mean? It means that the environment in which we live in, um, the surrounding environmental factors actually impact your heart wellness even more Mm -hmm. so than your genetic code. You can overcome the genetic code many times, um, but you can't overcome kind of the lifestyle and the habits and the things that you've built over a lifetime. So, you know, our children model how we act, what we do, how we eat, how we live, um, because that's the reality they know, you know. Mm-hmm. So I think that, um, you know, I uh, I will say that, you know, I have three young kids and um, I try my best to try to not do the things that I think mm-hmm. are not so healthy that I used to do, you know, when I was young, you know, so it's like less white rice, no wonder bread, you know, no one's <laughs> you know, but it's, uh, you know, but, you know, I think that we do know that um, patients that are at, at you know, um, uh, that don't have quite the same social economic kind of um, factors and benefits, they have more heart disease. You know, dis- right. social economically disadvantaged populations have more heart disease. They have mm-hmm. earlier deaths. And it's, um, you know, in the environment in which we live in. So I think right. whether it's making sure that your kids you know, know the importance of being active, you know, instead of sitting around the TV watching, um, you know, watching a show after dinner, you mm-hmm. go take a walk together, you get their bikes out and you go for a spin around the neighborhood, you know, that um, when you're choosing food choices, 
that you're trying to give them not just the fast option, but the healthier option. Sometimes right. it's, a, it's hard to manage both when you're a busy working mom, but I think that, you know, you try to do the best you can and make sure that they have, they're introduced to a more variety of foods and that, that mm -hmm. they're not just eating only mac and cheese all the time. They can have some, but maybe, you know, you can right. have a healthier version of that, right? Yeah. So it's about modeling, um, you know, those, those lifestyle things that are important for a lifetime of wellness. And, right. um, and it starts at home and it starts really early. Really yes. early. You know, at Base Camp, which is our wellness and prevention center here um, at Providence St. Vincent, we actually have a program called the FIT Project, where mm -hmm. we take families, you know, with kids, families, they're at risk for obesity or have obesity, they're referred to our program, and it's a free program funded by our foundation, where essentially we take a whole family through a long several week kind of health coaching course, where they're getting nutrition coaching, they're getting lifestyle coaching. And um, we help these families get on a pathway of trying to live healthier. And um, it's an incredibly impactful program. But it's kind of adopting those elements on your own, even if you can't be a part of the FIT project, you know, and, right. and if you're interested, you can certainly log on to welcome to basecamp.org. And there are virtual options as well that are available to anyone anywhere. Right. Dr. Tam, this has been an amazing conversation. And I, I know we could probably definitely go on and on. And I, I just want to summarize just a lot of the takeaways um, that we discussed, you know, the importance of um, knowing your numbers and really kind of responding to, you know, signs and symptoms, but also just being, being self-aware and getting those regular check-ins. Um, and I think that, you know, while there are differences in, um, you know, gender and race, ethnicity, and even some of those risk factors, it's just that we shouldn't, we shouldn't really um, consider ourselves not at risk at any, at any time, at any time in our life. And just that, um, you know, if we know our family history, there's probably a little bit of risk there, but um, what's most important is that we're responding to what we feel. The doctors can't read our mind, so we need to really give good history on all of that, and um, you know, not not deny that something could be wrong. But let's let's rule things out, right? We're not going to mm. try to rule things, rule things out. Um, the importance of lifestyle um, uh, around uh, diet and sleep and stress, um, and then uh, mindfulness, really, to try to you know reduce some of that stress. Hormones play a big factor in this, especially for women, um, that this isn't just a, a male disease, which once upon a time, I'm, I'm so glad to see how far this has come and how women, you know, um, aren't just uh, really sort of being dismissed as far as having, you know, possibly having a heart attack or having heart disease in general. Um, but then just, you know, the the swings that we, we go through in life and hormones kind of drive that and that's a fine balance. And, um, and then the last thing you just touched on really just around... Um, the things in our community and our environment that really can either, um, you know, put us on a successful path to, to, to the best lifestyle. And, and I would say even in that space, we, we're in, in our communities, we can advocate and we can, you know, build out those programs and partner with community, but, you know, resources to make that happen. So um, I just, one more question for you is just, is there anything else on this topic that, um, that you would like to, to cover. I, I know we, we went into all kinds of directions and it's been just amazing talking to you. Oh, yes. Well, you know, I, I think it's just really important for women to be proactive about their yeah. own health, right? I think that's you are your best advocate. If things mm -hmm. don't seem right, don't feel right, get it addressed. Um, you know, I think we talk about knowing your numbers, but know those numbers, you know, know that these are the key indicators of your risk for cardiovascular disease. Know your blood pressure, know your cholesterol, your blood sugar, what a healthy body mass index weight should be for you. Um, those are the earliest things that we can start to change 
um, and you can work with your physician to make sure you get um, on a path to where you need to be if you're not there. And if you're there, how you can maintain that and maintain a lifetime of wellness. Awesome. Well, thank you, Dr. Tam, for sharing your story and get, and sharing your advice. Um, and uh, really appreciate you being here. Thank, thank you. Thank you, Judy. Really appreciate it as well. Take care. Thank you for joining us today on this important topic on Heart Matters. We look forward to continuing the important conversation on heart health and wellness with more experts from Providence in future episodes. Make sure you listen to all of our shows on Dash Radio under Future of Health Radio or your favorite podcast platform and follow us on social media. We can be found on Twitter and Facebook at Providence and on Instagram under Providence Health Systems. To learn more about our missions, programs, and services, go to Providence.org. And for more information on Boston Scientific, visit bostonscientific.com. And please remember, the information provided during this program is for educational purposes only. You should always consult your healthcare provider if you have any questions regarding a medical condition or treatment. Thanks for listening. And remember, at Providence, we see the life in you. Thank you.